1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Today's buzz, a healthier future. If you've been hiding under the rocks recently, you don't know that we have a lot of health crises going on around the world. Today may be a good day in terms of news, but we're talking about the role of pharma and technology. Let me dial back a little bit here. On September 17th, just a couple of weeks ago, we had part one of our topic, pharma and technology. We talked about the need for pharmaceutical companies to move faster, to introduce safe, cost-effective drugs. I think the emphasis is on cost-effective as much as on safe, drugs that respond effectively to cancer, to Ebola, and other what we call chronic and urgent diseases. Well, today I have the same panel back for part two. We're going to talk about how pharma and medical device companies are working together to surmount the hurdles in the health market as they help all of us prepare for a healthy global future. Yes, we're all together in this, all around the world. There is no just your neighborhood, my neighborhood, your door, my door. We're all in the global economy today. So a couple of questions pose themselves. How soon will the companies be able to glean life-saving insights by connecting the dots from scientific data, clinical data, genomic data, and patient therapy data? That may be the most important of all. How will new collaboration networks add value to clinical trials, where it all needs to start and come out with good outcomes, and post-drug launches? You've got to follow up on this stuff. And are they optimistic, these companies, that these and other innovations in the works will yield urgently needed improvements? Oh, yes, we need improvements. We're welcoming back three members of the panel from September 17th, and let's get started with my first guest. It's Ashish Goel at Infosys. He's in London today. And interestingly, Ashish sent me a quote from Rudy Giuliani. This is going to be an interesting explanation. Former and very colorful mayor of New York City. And here's the quote. Change is not a destination, just as hope is not a strategy. That's beautiful. Ashish, welcome back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. How are you? I'm okay, Bonnie. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks for joining me again. This is exciting to have you back. So tell me a quote from Rudy Giuliani. It's his first time on Coffee Break Radio. How did you come to pick this, and how does it relate to our topic about a healthier future, Ashish?
2: Yeah, I think (laughs) this quote has got an uh, interesting background because of the political... um, context it was used in. and In fact, it was a culmination of two different quotes. But uh, if you leave that history behind, uh, I find this quote uh, really uh, uh, putting a lot of uh, perspective for not just business or life in general, but uh, specifically for uh, the evolution of medicinal science in the context of pharma and uh, medical devices. Uh, in the context of this topic, I would say that uh, hope is not just what we should live with, but drive that hope into concrete actions and deliverables. Uh, And with change that is expected all around, whether it is uh, in terms of uh, um, new challenges in the healthcare, aging population, falling Mm -hmm. already productivity, we need to ensure that the costs come down, a faster outcomes come out, new solutions are constantly created, and which address uh, the market needs. And that is not going to happen uh, if the organisations continue trying uh, the same methods, same procedures, same philosophies that they have used over decades, uh, in the hope that eventually it will work. And part of the the crisis we saw through the patent cliff. Uh, over the last uh, six to seven years, uh, was largely because of this reason. Because and and now I see uh, an interesting point where the shift in the in the scientific evolution of medicines is actually happening. We are beginning to see good results. So so that's really mm-hmm. the broader context why I thought this is really relevant. Uh, if we leave the political context behind.
1: Thank you, Ashish. Good opening, and I have a quick question for you. My question is, in light of the fact that the headlines are saying that uh, Ebola may not be as much of a threat as a present danger as we have been told in the past couple of weeks, would that impact the R&D, the clinical trials of companies that are competing or, or rushing to market, if they can do such a thing as rush, with e- anti-Ebola drugs? Uh, is this going to say, oh, wow, they're wiping that brow and saying, well, good, that one's off the table, or will that urgency continue?
2: I think that urgency will continue because uh, while we are seeing uh, first country Niger- Nigeria actually coming out and declaring themselves uh, Ebola free, we are far uh, from uh, being out of woods, and uh, we still need proper vaccination. We still need uh, uh, ways to contain it. We still uh, the the world needs to actually invest more in in uh, the fight against Ebola. Um, So right now, I I would say it's still the containment mode, and uh, there's a long Mm -hmm. way uh, ahead.
1: Good. Thank you very much. Just wanted to get that newsworthy question, and thank you. Our second guest, returning panelist, is Dr. Alan S. Louis. He's a Ph.D., and he works at IDC Health Insights, and Alan sent us a Confucius quote. I love this one. It's one of my favorites. Choose a job you love, and you will never have to work a day in your life Dr. Alan Louie, welcome back. How are you today? Doing very well.
3: Great to be here.
1: Wonderful. We're delighted. So talk to me. Confucius quote, you had a very provocative quote the last time, too. So how does this relate to our pharma and medical devices and scientific uh, exploration into medicines and making the world a healthier place? Alan?
3: Yeah. So as I thought of this quote, it, you know, it really reflects, uh, I've been very fortunate in that having uh finished my initial doctoral work in biochemistry that I could actually take what I learned and begin to apply it to problems where you could actually get a tangible difference in the world. And so that same fundamental I think applies to to most if not all of the major researchers going on in the field, many of the healthcare professionals, um, you know, emergency response people at the point of care in the in these really um, you know, changing times. And so these people are more than willing to try to figure out ways to solve the problems and particularly look at problems that have never been seen before in this particular mm-hmm. context and try to essentially expedite a path forward that makes it better for everyone. And in doing so, you know, it really doesn't feel like work even though you're exhausted by the end of the day.
1: Alan, I'm going to ask you a, a, a word that comes to mind. The word is passion. In order to do this job, do you need to be passionate about the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of solutions, the pursuit of the right chemical solutions in the right place at the right time for the right people? In other words, does this have to be your life work to really be devoted to the world of pharma?
3: Well, actually, and I think uh, to some extent that's true, but from a greater context, I think it just becomes part of the greater whole. Uh, clearly, passion is only one component that needs to be brought to the table when you're okay. looking at uh, very complex problems such as this. And so, uh, up and beyond that, you also need the foundational knowledge. You need to uh, basically screed out the noise that basically confuses a lot of the different um, issues at hand. And in order to move forward, it, it can be part of, of one's greater view on the world. You know, clearly, you know, while I, I see my opportunity to be able to um, help the industry and help society move forward by um, basically avoiding pitfalls and figuring out how to go forward you know you can then mix that in with some of the other passions that one has and, and basically uh, lead a much more rounded life and ideally be something of a renaissance person as you uh, essentially pursue passion
1: Thank you very much. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, we have a show coming up next week on our series called Future of Business with Game Changers, and we're talking about the battleground for creative ideas, creative processes. And I think one of the, the topic questions, Alan, is is it inspiration or is it really just persistence and commitment and getting it done until it gets done? Thank you for that. I appreciate the information. Joe Miles at SAP brought me a quote today from Tom Peters, and here's the quote test fast fail fast adjust fast. I could crochet that on a pillow in about 20 minutes, Joe. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, welcome back Joe Miles and tell me, how does this relate to our topic?
4: Well, I think it's it's interesting because it it builds on I think what uh, my esteemed colleagues were just referring to uh, in their in their quotes and that is you know, with with everything that's going on in the in the world today, um, and the, the complexity that uh, that researchers are dealing with in terms of the medicine and, and the science required to develop these incredibly um, incredible drugs, life changing drugs, and products, and so forth, that um, it's a new time, right? There's uh, it's it's not uh, not the time to kind of. Go back and leverage what we've always done. You've got opportunities now to, to view of, uh, just vast amounts of data, much more so than we've ever been able to do in the past. And your ability to understand that data, to understand the outcomes inherent in that data, understand the relationships and so forth, give you insights that, that uh, historically you may or may not have uh, had before. And your ability to understand those insights, to be able to identify, um, you know, statistically relevant conditions and, and uh, And outcomes that go along with that can can be the you know the marker to uh, to move forward or or to to cancel a a a trial or cancel the research or, or adjust the research more so and I think that in the in the day and age where the complexity has grown so much but so now has the has the volume of data and the understanding of that data and if you think about just you know your comment earlier about the Ebola crisis and how mm-hmm. We've been responding as a as a global community over the last few weeks and months with uh, w- whether it was the um, the, the nurses, or the, the staff in the hospital, being exposed uh, unnecessarily to uh, to the to the virus, and they begin the realization that. You know they were protected. It's just when they were starting to take off that protection that they were exposing themselves and changing the protocols and reacting to that and and understanding where the outbreaks are happening and, and where they're coming from and, and just being very granular with that information. I think at a time, you think about 20, 30 years ago, we would never have had an opportunity to be able to have that level of granularity on the data and the timeliness of that mm-hmm. data and have the exposure on that data to make the changes, to alter the, the protocols, to protect the people. And I think you need to bring that same kind of mentality to the to the research.
1: Joe, thank you. I'm, I'm looking at the quote from Tom Peters: "Test fast, fail fast, adjust fast." And my eyes are focusing on the "fail fast." I'm, I can hear people being nervous and saying, "A drug company is going to fail fast. Who's going to be the victim of that failure?" So, can we clarify that "fail fast" in this context has to be in a lab situation or in a in a, a test tube situation? No, no humans. You know where I'm going with this.
4: Yeah, it's, I mean, fail is, is not the fail doesn 't mean life or death necessarily in this in this context, right It means uh, your understanding um, was was flawed or or was not uh, accurate, and so your ability to, de- to di- uh, detect and understand that inaccuracy allows you to make the adjustment to correct the the study. maybe it means canceling uh, a phase one study. Um, it could have significant ramifications, but it 's much better to cancel a phase one study than to go forward mm-hmm. with a phase two study and then cancel it then, uh, at that point. And if you think of the cost involved and the the time and so forth. Sure. So fail is a relative statement. It does not necessarily imply uh, life you. or death necessarily, but it, uh, it, it has the same ramifications on
1: I feel better already. Thank you, Joe. I feel so good that I'm going to ask you all the question of the day. What's in your cup? What are you drinking or what do you wish you're drinking after the show? Let's dial back, circle back to Ashish Goel at Infosys. Ashish, what's in your cup? You're in London. It's after 4 o'clock. See, it's 4.14 in the afternoon, p.m. What are you drinking?
2: Uh, it's my favorite um uh, hot, strong, warm cup of uh tea, black tea, 17 0 blend from Twinings. Um, You know, actually, let me tell you a little bit about uh, tea. Do you know tea uh, was originated in China uh, as a medicinal drink? And then Portuguese uh, merchants brought it to Europe and then it went back to Asia through uh, British, which uh, took it to India in order to compete with the Chinese monopoly on the product. And today, uh, it is one of the most popular drink in an Indian household. And in fact, so much so that uh, actually, why just India? You you can walk into a Starbucks today and you can uh, get a warm cup of uh, uh, chai latte. Chai is is a commonly used Hindi word for uh, tea. So wow, yeah, the world is really small uh, if you if you think of the product.
1: Wow, thank you very much. I'm tweeting that, actually. I'm tweeting that while I'm talking to you. So thank you very much. There we go. It's a famous quote from you now. Thank you, Ashish. Alan, Louie, what are you drinking today? Yes, so
3: um, for those people who know me, I've got a bit of a sweet tooth. So given the opportunity this evening, and it's still early in the day here today, so I think I'd probably hold off until later tonight, uh, my my drink of choice would actually be a very uh, sweet wine, either known as an ice wine or a sauterne. And oh. the best of those and the ones that I feel most passionate about is a wine that comes out of, I think it's the French Bordeaux Valley called Chateau Dicam, which in one, in some um, rankings actually is considered to be the, the best wine in the world. Uh it tends to be super sweet, very fruity, and uh, something that one can really sort of dwell over as, as you sip it quite gently.
1: I'm loving this. I remember an ice wine when I was doing a wine tasting at one of the wineries on the North Fork on Long Island, Alan, and I remember it was in a very small bottle. It was very expensive, and it was, I think, the grapes were harvested just at the first frost. Am I right about that? And they were ultra, ultra sweet. Is that an accurate statement? Uh,
3: Yes, uh, to some extent. I think you wait for the first freeze, at which point there can actually be ice on the outside of the grapes, Uh, Long Island has some wonderful ice wines. I've actually explored that uh, quite a bit, as well as um, the area around Niagara Falls and and Niagara-on-the-Lake up in Canada. So there's some spectacular wines, and,
1: you know, it's amazing how much flavor there can be in, in one little glass. I remember it well. Thank you very much. That was a very delicious tasting I remember many years ago, and I'm glad you enjoyed the Long Island Vineyards as I do. Joe Miles, where are you calling from, and what's in your cup today?
4: So, I'm just outside of Chicago on a beautiful day here in the midwest and i'm uh, I'm pretty boring when it comes to morning drinks, but uh I have some uh some green tea with just a little cube with a single cube to, to sweeten a little bit for my sweet tooth um, and uh it's pretty boring at that point, so.
1: I don't think it's boring at all. It's just, it's green tea, it's green tea. It's healthy, right? That's your choice. I like that. Uh, You know, they only let me drink water on radio show days. No caffeine till after the show is over. I wonder why. Guess what? We are going to take our first break. I'm so pleased to be talking to my three esteemed panelists on a very, very important topic. We're talking about a healthier global future in the context of Pharma and technology, what's happening? How fast can they bring new, effective, cost-effective, cost, cost effective, effective, and safe drugs to market to challenge the, the cancer, the Ebola, other chronic and urgent diseases that are permeating the world and making life tough for too many people? I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers Radio. If you're keeping track, today is... Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014. But more important, this is our live episode number 155. So, there, we're going to take our break and come back with Ashish Goel at Infosys, Alan Louis, PhD at IDC Health Insights, and Joe Miles at SAP. Our topic is pharma and technology, part two. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase, an SAP company, offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers.
1: Here we are, very important topic today, pharma and technology. I'm speaking with Ashish Goel at Infosys, Alan S. Louis, Ph.D. at IDC Health Insights, and Joe Miles at SAP. We had a great opening segment talking about, and now we're going to do a deeper dive in our 30-minute nonstop roundtable. Ashish Goel at Infosys, you're first up on the roundtable panel. Um, I'm going to start with a comment you sent me before the show, Ashish, and you can take it Anywhere you want. You said the emerging markets offer massive untapped growth opportunities, albeit with increased demographic complexities. Give us the the level set for this. How this relates to our topic of pharma and medical devices companies and R and D. Go ahead, Ashish.
2: Yeah, I think. uh, See, see, if you look at uh, today, world's demographic. Two thirds of world population is in in the emerging markets. Uh, The buying propensity in these markets is increasing. Um, there are uh, which is leading to a bigger market set opening up for the the large pharma companies and medical devices, uh, so on one hand, uh, the industry faces the challenge of uh, aging population uh, in the in the more mature western markets. Uh, the emerging markets offer fantastic opportunities to not only uh, take in the the patented drugs but also uh, more and more end of line uh, drugs which are uh, which have uh, been benefiting the western market now, the challenge that uh, the companies face today is um, is really around uh, distribution around uh, the cost of manufacturing around Making uh, the whole economics work uh, for the emerging markets. Uh, at Infosys, we work across a number of very, very large pharma companies, medical devices companies, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's single biggest challenge they they try they are trying to deal with. And as a result, we see more and more. Uh, Rationalisation initiatives across the manufacturing and supply chain, uh, where again uh, technology is playing a big role in helping them uh, set up new plants in the in the in the economies in the geographies which are closer to these emerging markets, which can meet uh, regulatory requirements of the local markets as well as uh, provide uh, better distribution points to these markets. So, so um, so I see emerging markets really producing a, a, a very big opportunity for the pharma companies. On the other hand. Um, from the R&D uh, productivity standpoint, um, these markets also create new challenges. So, um, uh, if you look at uh, the the genomic uh, complexity of uh, the the new markets that bring in, so even the clinic if you think of the research and and uh, clinical development processes, the trials need to be more inclusive. Uh, taking into uh, uh, into the context of uh, the wider population that uh, the companies will have to deal with and so on and so forth. So, um, so the challenges at the same time are significant. I see that actually driving uh, some pretty significant amount of collaboration uh, between uh, um, large pharma companies, medical devices, pharma companies and payers, pharma companies and regulators in these markets as well as um, uh, with the emergence of digital technologies. Today, if you look at uh, the patient of today, uh, the patient is a lot more informed. We are a lot more informed. And uh, therefore, a lot more communication and collaboration is beginning to take place between uh, the organizations, the businesses, and the patients and healthcare professionals, uh, which uh, is today uh, helping them actually deliver higher drug efficacy uh, because uh, the pharma company's ability to provide uh, timely inputs and behavioral support during the course of medication. And all this is uh, is driven on the back of uh, new technologies being leveraged by the companies.
1: Thank you, Ashish. I want to get Dr. Alan Louis in here to comment on emerging markets. Alan, thoughts?
3: Yeah, it's actually, uh, both an opportunity and a challenge from an industry's perspective. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for tech innovation to really help, uh, streamline a lot of these processes. You know, as the prior speaker just said, you know, there's this added aspect of complexity that's now being brought to bear. And clearly as, as we look at the global markets, the life science industry and pharma in particular has been looking at it as sort of a, you know, an add-on to be able to allow them to, uh, extend some of the revenue opportunity for their existing drugs. At the same time as they've been thinking about new drugs, what has actually started to happen is all of these new markets and, and new uh, economies are really starting to introduce some of their own regulatory complexity, uh, in, in, to some degree, as an economic tool, because they want you to to situate um, resources in those countries. But at the end of the day there is the opportunity basically to accommodate all of these added levels of complexity through working with uh, external partners, whether it be um, uh, an outsource vendor or something outside of one's core competency, whether it's the CROs or other organizations, to essentially maintain or sub- supplant or sub- uh, you know to beat out the amount of
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, efficiencies that you are currently uh, executing on and yet still at the same day increase revenue and increase profitability overall. So I think um, the new markets are an opportunity. Clearly there are the issues that were raised with regards to demographics, although we have those same issues here in the States as we look at, you know, how do you develop a new drug and then figure out whether it works in kids uh, or women or racial yeah. breakdown or et cetera. So, so those same levels of complexity are are, are even much more um Difficult as you begin to look at it even within the existing markets.
1: Thank you, Alan. I want to go to Joe Miles, and I mentioned that Joe Miles is uh, SAP's Global VP of Life Sciences Industry. Joe, thoughts on emerging markets? What are you responding to what Alan has shared with us and Ashish at Infosys? Talk to me. Well, I think they both made
4: Excellent point on, on a couple different levels, and I think, again, they offer both opportunities and challenges. I think uh, I spent mm-hmm. some time this summer in, in, in Eastern Europe, and and, uh, and the markets are fascinating over there in, in terms of a lot of um, up emerging companies from those regions are opening up markets that historically the, the larger companies have had challenges opening up from a profitability perspective, quite simply. Most of them are single-pay markets. Governments do not have significant um, reimbursement levels compared to more mature markets. And so the operating models um, are are very different, and the cost models are very different and it 's very challenged to a multinational uh, pharmaceutical or medical device company to be able to create uh, products um, and make the investment that they 've historically done, but to do it in a way that 's profitable for those markets and so it it creates a, a lot of uh, interesting challenges um, at some level yet on the other side of it from if you think of it more from the from the clinical side and from the uh, from the research side. Uh, the emerging markets offer um, patient patient densities that are that are uh, you know significantly higher than the maybe more mature markets they offer genetic backgrounds that are very different than, than maybe some of the emerging markets so the opportunities for um, diversity from the patient population as well as the ability to recruit patients um, easy more potentially more easily just based on having more people um, in many of the in markets, whether it's the African markets or the uh, Indian markets or uh, Eastern Europe, wherever it might be, uh, becomes an opportunity to to get a you know to f- have faster patient recruitment, to uh, have a more mm-hmm. diverse patient population or a more aligned population based on what you're looking for potentially from a genomic uh, perspective of, of the patients, and really brings a, a new dynamic to uh, the ability to uh, to get a trial off the ground uh, maybe a lot more uh, quickly and a lot more effectively uh, than maybe has historically been the case.
1: Joe, quick question for you before we go to another topic. I'm going to look at Alan Louise' notes in a second. Joe, in terms of pharma testing trials in other populations around the world, are they are, are pharma companies finding that the populations are enlightened enough to want to participate in clinical trials, or is there a reluctance? What's what's the culture?
4: Well, I don't I don't know if there's a culture. Cultural aspect to it, I think there 's just simply a, a challenge in with any trial mm-hmm. as to the patient recruitment process can be can be very difficult so finding um, potentially if you 're looking at a, a large molecule uh, initiative and you 're looking for patients of a specific particular uh, genomic background or ethnic mm-hmm. background or some common trait in that in that population, uh, it can be very difficult to find them. Um, Tumor sizes, uh, cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease states—it uh, could be a variety of characteristics—and and that's just difficult to do. And so, I think the some of the emerging markets is because of the patient, uh, the population densities, um, and just having a billion people, it just gives them a much more uh, billion-plus. Um, it gives them more uh, greater opportunities to, to identify patients and and get them into trials a lot more quickly, maybe than other markets.
1: Great point, thank you. It's a numbers game. Ashish, Bonnie anything Curtis? you want? Yes, p- yes, please go ahead. I
2: want to add uh, another point to mm-hmm. that, uh, Bonnie. I think um, if you think of emerging markets, um, uh, and let me take the example of Ebola. Right. Yep. Uh, the, the, the 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 disease has been around since seventies. If my mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm correct, but we still don't have a, 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 a treatment for that or a, a prevention for that the reason primarily has been the lack of focus i would say because uh, it has been contained uh, largely in emerging markets and uh, th- therefore the economics uh, economic interests actually drove uh, the the sort of prioritization but if you look at today with the the extent of uh, uh, the uh, of uh, air travel and people moving across the world and so on and so forth no disease can be contained to a physical boundary and therefore, uh, mm-hmm. the choice of, uh, of, of priorities can't be just restricted by the sheer economics of where the money can be made and how fast the money can be made. Because at the end of the day, everything comes, uh, comes back. And, and we are seeing that with Ebola, uh, uh, breakout. Now we are beginning to see the cases emerging in Western markets. And, uh, and yes. now we are seeing a different level of urgency to bring the vaccines out and so on and so forth for a disease which has been around since 70s.
1: That's right. I'm, I'm, I am I'm just looked that up while you were speaking, Ashish, and I'm looking at World Health Organization. It says the current outbreak in West Africa, with the first cases noted in March 2014, and here we are in October, is the largest and most complex Ebola outbreak since the virus was discovered in 1976. So you're absolutely right there. We have a little little trivia, not happy trivia, but trivia. So thank you, Ashish. Thank you all for that first thread. Alan Louis, let's go in a slightly different direction. I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show, and I've something I think is very interesting. Tell me if you agree. You say technological innovation is empowering automated intelligence in the life science industry with data growth exceeding four times Moore's law. And you're going to have to translate that for me. Researchers will need to work smarter, not harder, to succeed over the long term. Alan, Louie, why don't we go there?
3: Sure. You know, to some extent, this, this sort of follows on from what Joe has said with regards to genomics. And I think that's actually where my 4X Moore's law notion came from so the notion of Moore's Law is essentially looking at the fact that data that's generated doubles every few years and so for something to to keep up with that data growth technology has to improve you need to have faster computers you need to have cheaper storage etc and so just maintaining Moore's Law on the growth of technology etc requires a, a certain degree of progress to now look at the amount of technology and the rate at which it has been growing, and then you overlay that with things like the, the $1,000 genome and the ability to do a whole genome sequencing in a commodity basis means that all of a sudden we have the ability to generate very large quantities of data, which at this current pace is actually being generated at a faster rate than we can digest. In thinking about that data, you know, basically we come to the dilemma that you know, you have all this information in hand and if you think about the, nat- the changing nature of life science companies is that historically they would have you know the scientific literature research coming out of academic laboratories they would have their own internal research and that would have been to a large extent some of the the boundaries around the information they had access to as we look at the times now and look forward that has really changed and so as we think about what's going on from a life science perspective companies are very interested in getting access to data from patients in, in hospitals and seeing how they respond to treatment, what their specific conditions are, et cetera. So now all of a sudden we have this in electronic form, in the form of electronic medical records or electronic health records, and that data has a great potential to really inform what's going on. And then similarly, as you go forward, you have additional data coming out of healthcare payers, uh it was once said and this was sort of the, the groundings of the uh FDA or um HHS Sentinel program, where essentially by monitoring whether people filled their prescriptions, taking the numbers in the millions, it was actually possible to predict VIOX much more quickly than it took actually uh given the existing processes. And and while that initial premise is incorrect because you kinda need to know what to look for uh in order to find it, um, it has really, uh, sort of reinforced the point that there's a lot of data out there, and if you can smartly use that data, then you can actually uh, generate advantage. So I think that's the notion where I would start to take around, uh, work around the concept of actionable intelligence. So you have information under your umbrella, you have a lot of good computational tools, and you actually have these things called workflow tools, where you can build in an automatic search routine, and every time the data gets updated you can run this routine automatically and if something pops out for example if a number of you know elevated blood pressure or elevated temperature or fever in patients involved in the clinical trial occurs that can be an early sign that there's a problem and so if the you know the percentage of patients in that particular screen all of a sudden show this elevated level somebody should know about it and so having the ability to automatically screen the data to where that information, when found, gets automatically pushed to a safety person, says, you really need to look at this right now because patients are at risk. And so by doing so, you can save lives, identify issues, and then essentially work much more efficiently going forward. So if you think about that in a broader perspective, let's now think about it as one looks at the eventuality where everyone's genome will be sequenced. You can now take this data apply that into the process where, as a physician goes to begin to examine a patient and looks at potential diseases that this patient could be treated for and drugs available for that, they would then now have the ability to apply, for example, the genome information as to which of the drugs works better given that particular individual's specific genotypes and use that information to get them better outcomes more quickly and to avoid therapies that could actually either do nothing or do harm and waste you know, waste resources at the same time. So I think the ability to work smarter is really coming along very quickly. And from the vendor perspective, once you start building those things into your tools, you have much smarter products that actually become much more desirable.
1: Thank you, Alan. A lot of information there. Joe Miles, I'm going to ask you to chime in and go anywhere that Alan was and comment, agree, disagree, or raise the bar. Go ahead.
4: No, I would continue to build off of. I think their their comments are both, um, you know, on on point in terms of where the market is going. I would maybe add somewhat that you know if we if we look at the market, what's going on in the marketplace, and it's a technology provider to the to the marketplace, you know, we certainly are very aware of that. We we have our own technologies that are looking into these mass amounts of data, but they're estimating uh, to be somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty billion devices that will by twenty 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 that will be capturing. Data and be connected to something, um, you know. So the the amount of data will just, you know, Moore's law will be blown away because you've got so many more collectors of of, of some of that data. But I think what's interesting about it is you see it both from a research and from a from a clinical um, post uh, commercial perspective, uh, from the standpoint that yes, absolutely, what Alan was describing. The research becomes very, very different. Um, your ability to understand that data, having algorithms, you understand the science to fail fast, right? To take, mm-hmm. to understand what's, what uh, a premise and make a hypothesis, but realize through the data that that hypothesis was incorrect. And so you would alter that and you adjust and you manu- move and you take all that data in and you're understanding, you know, from a research perspective. Um, your ability now to isolate populations and to look at patients, not simply from a pure research perspective, but now we're actually gonna look at a patient from a genomic perspective, and that's a specific patient population. So we're only gonna look at individuals with certain gene markers turned on and because we we see that from a data perspective, just simply looking at a statistical view of that data, we see a statistically relevant uh, delta between this patient population and another patient population that doesn't have this gene marker turned to you know turned on, if you will. Um, so those types of that type of research is. Is, is growing, is iterating. That is not as simple as it sounds, or I don't mean to, to make it sound that simple, but it is mm-hmm. moving in that, in that direction. Yet on the other hand, what we're also seeing is that these devices and this data capture is being done from a commercial perspective. So in mm-hmm. the same way that, um, the data is being collected through all of these Fitbits, through your cell phones, through all the various types of devices that, that, that are out there, um, there's a there's a real focus in by many life science companies to target that on chronic disease states to help p- patients not only have a better quality of life in uh in with their existing therapies but to improve that therapy to actually improve the outcome by providing a, a more uh, a broader base of of understanding um, so we know now that it's not just simply taking your uh your statin for your for your cholesterol, but ensuring that you get your exercise, ensuring that you're mm-hmm. eating the right um, food and your, your diet, you're staying on, on a good diet, and you're, you're, you know, doing the things you need to do beyond um, the, the, the simple process of just taking a drug, because we know that that has, a, you know, a significantly improved outcome. And the, the benefit is that, obviously, we, we improve the patient's quality of life, and we improve their uh, ability to you know just to, to live, but also the um, from a payer perspective that pharmaceuticals will will and drug, drug companies will get a higher reimbursement level if they know and they can provide um, you know st- statistically relevant and quality data that the, these pre- these processes will have uh, a significant impact on the, the outcome of the of the drug and improve reduce the cost of care uh, you know in the long
1: term. That's one of our goals. Thank you, Joe Ashish Goel Infosys. What do you think? A lot of information we've shared here.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, the two things. So I, I agree with what um, Alan and Joe uh, said. So let me uh, spend a few minutes on on how what we are seeing in the marketplace and how the pharma companies are responding to these opportunities. There's uh, so a couple of things that I would I would bring out. Uh, number one, uh, I see a lot of in, uh, collaboration happening across uh, the different stakeholders. So so for example. Um, Uh, And some of these healthcare companies are ahead of curve. For example, AstraZeneca is partnering with HealthCore. Uh, It's a data subsidiary of uh, healthcare provider WellPoint to find most effective and economical treatment for chronic illness and other common diseases. It's basically on the back of... uh, Joining up the data, the insights, the information the two organizations have and then using it to drive better outcomes for the patients. In fact, uh, McKinsey uh, came up uh, with this uh, as part of their research uh, for on big data could came, uh, came up with the analysis that big data could actually reduce the R&D costs for pharma mar- makers by 40 billion uh, to close to 70 billion dollars. So today they spend almost 110 billion dollars. Um, uh, the 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 cost of uh, actually adopting big data solutions is also uh, beginning to come down, with open source technologies such as Hadoop and uh, with uh, with really commodity infrastructure clusters being made available. Uh, uh, at Infosys, we see a number of our clients actually looking into. Uh, 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 the proof of concepts and pilots uh, to actually harness the power of big data and not at prohibitive cost that uh, it used to require uh, just a year back. So so I think the signs are positive. Uh, the opportunities were always there, but now uh, first time uh, we're beginning to see the real implementations and, and potential benefits uh, of uh, the big data.
1: Thank you very much. Interesting. You're mentioning that, Ashish, and, and this conversation. I'm looking at our Twitter feed here on hashtag SAP Radio, and we have a nice duel going on here with Pramod Pratap at Infosys and SAP Health Sciences. It could be Brad Borkin or Susan Rafazada. and, uh, the question was raised, does big data have a big role in pharma industry? Genetic data can be generated faster than we can digest. That came from Pramod Pratap and SAP Healthcare. SAP Health Sciences responded, yes, it does, and retweeted it. So we've got some interesting commentary going here. Uh, Joe Miles, I want to cover something in your notes here. I'm looking at your last talking point you sent me. Uh, tell me if this is something you'd like to talk about. Companies able to leverage emerging technologies of non-healthcare related capabilities will accelerate their understanding of science. Can you elaborate on that, Joe?
4: Well, it's one of the um, things I think is as we think out into the where the market's going. You're seeing more mm-hmm. and more of this, where emerging technologies, from a pure technology perspective, is is having an impact. And I think the the obvious one is obviously the iPad and what the iPad has done uh, in terms of changing the the, the nature and the, the type of interaction that a physician, uh, for example, would have with its patients, given its ability to present information in a very easy and um, and, uh, enhanced experience, you know, for the, for the user. And I think we're gonna continue to see that both from, you know, from the experience side, so, you know, the iPad type of uh, scenarios, but, but more so, I think, from, from the data and, and some of the science that we're, that we're talking about. Um I think the ability of organizations, and, and, and again, as a technology provider, SAP has developed a number of in-memory capabilities that are driving, you know, the ability to, to just digest and process vast, vast amounts of data and to be able to glean insights predictive analytics you know around that data just continues to grow and grow and grow our understanding of the ability of uh, and the algorithms and the science that goes along with that are are is enhanced um, but the tools that that continue to grow um, are coming not only from from within the industry so companies like SAP that have been serving directly with life science companies but they're also coming from other companies and we mentioned Apple Samsung uh Google with the creation of their contact lens that's actually uh a diabetic, uh, it's a glucose reader. It has the ability to Mm -hmm. to read your sugars, you know, just simply as a contact lens. I think we're going to continue to see those types of capabilities, um, as companies are, are leveraging that, um, you know, we talked earlier this year to organizations who are leveraging the Microsoft Connect product to, as a measurement of multiple sclerosis and to determine the type of dexterity that a, an individual has based on a, th- a virtual reality image that's, pr- that's projected and can they, can they track that, right? From, you know, with physically how you measure some things like that. So I think with, we're seeing that, you know, we're at the, the early stages of that, but that is just going to continue to accelerate and I think it's, it's fascinating. To think about the non-healthcare players who are mm-hmm. going to bring technologies to the marketplace that could have a dramatic impact on the efficacy of products, on the experience for patients, um, and on the overall uh, productivity of the outcome. Uh, in you know, for years to come, I think that's just going to continue to, to grow and grow and grow.
1: Thank you, Joe. Question for you. I think we're going to take a break right after you respond to me. And the question is, are patients clamoring for these devices, for these innovations? Are they saying, doctor, doctor, please help me. Whatever it takes, I'll wear it. I'll, I'll drink it. I'll put it on my back of my bed. I'll put it in my car, whatever it is. Or is it coming more from the companies that are developing, going to patients and saying, We think we can help you, but you're going to have to open your mind and embrace this thing that you never heard of before. So where is the push? Where is the pull coming from? Any observations?
4: I think you're seeing a natural evolution, and I believe Ashish and Alan both alluded to this earlier, that... Uh, patients are taking more control of their, of their own mm-hmm. healthcare decisions. And, uh, they also have a level of sophistication from a technology perspective that, you know, maybe historically hasn't been there. I don't know. Maybe it has not been there before. So I think there's a natural inclination that, that patients are willing and, and want to take more control over their own healthcare decisions. At the same time, I think they're quite comfortable with the technology. And as long right. as the technology is simple and easy, it's a lot easier than writing a lot of stuff down, right? And a lot more accurate And, and a Fitbit <laughs> device, true. just putting it on your wrist. And we know the, A lot of folks, uh, you know, leverage that simple technology. It just makes it easier, simpler, and more accurate and gives them a much better perspective on their overall health and well-being, um, you know, as a result of that. So I think it's really being driven by both.
1: And it could even be fun and exciting as well. It could Uh, be fun. Alan, Louie, I'm going to give you one minute to respond to this. What are your thoughts on what Joe just said?
3: Yeah, actually, I would agree uh, with most of the things that he said. It's And I think I can extend it one bit further. Mm -hmm. You know, the industry over the last few years has actually done a good job of realizing that it can gain benefit from best practices from outside the industry. And so in doing so, it's actually begun to pilot things that they would have never done before. At the same time, the world has changed. You know, we're at a point where uh, some of the major advances that can help to drive the industry forward are coming from other industries. So we're looking at consumer driven industries. We're looking at uh different things that are coming out of uh gaming technologies etc. Mm. and so the bring your own device aspect of going that's uh basically taken over within the industry has actually uh worked its way backwards back towards the consumer. Uh as, as Joe was pointing out, you know, the patients are very much more actively engaged, but I would also caveat that with the fact that they're actively engaged where they see a benefit. So they actually have to see mm-hmm. a tangible benefit from what they're doing. And in doing so, they're more than willing to adopt things. Uh, I would argue that some of the the cutting-edge innovations, whether it be, you know, the use of smartphone accelerometers to determine whether someone's Parkinson's disease is progressing, is really pretty early. And so we're not quite there yet, but it is coming quickly. And so those technologies are going to be very powerful. You know, consumers granted, and patients in particular, are becoming increasingly engaged because they can access information. So social media is actually going to become a very important process that needs to be brought into the industry and then expanded and and embraced. The caveats of that are always going to be the fact that, well, yeah, they're talking to each other. And if you think of it within the framework of clinical trials, you have the added problem that well, they promise not to talk to each other, but they're, going, they're, again, looking at self-interest. They want to know if they're on the real drug, or if they're on the placebo, and by talking to other people involved in the trials, they may find out, well, you know, there's a particular test that the doctor is doing that would tell you yes or no whether you're on the drug and you're not supposed to get it, and they might go outside and get it, or they'll talk to each other and say, well, you know, the real drug's actually bitter and the, reg- the placebo's not, mm-hmm. at which point it can really um, potentially uh, compromise... Uh, the success of those trials which are needed to guarantee safety and efficacy. So I, I think there's, there's very much the input of technology and advances and best practices that are coming in from all different places, all of which have the potential to really move us all forward. And so the question is doing it in ways that don't set us back. And, you know, there, there's the classic example of, you know, the person who Reports on social media that says that there was a blog out there where they said, "Well, I took my brother's drug because for this thing, and I had the nastiest side effect from that." Ooh, and ooh. all of which is problematic. You know, one, he's not supposed to be taking his brother's drug. Two, it's an adverse mm-hmm. event that might be reportable. And this question was asked directly to the FDA, and the FDA says, "Well, you know, we we really don't want to comment on specific things because that, hopefully, is the exception rather than the rule."
1: I love the example. You know what? I think we're going to skip the break because we're just moving into the last eight minutes of the show. Why would we want to stop this? Thank you very much, Alan. I'm going to go back to Ashish Goel at Infosys. And Ashish, I'm going to ask you to be the first up in the crystal ball predictions round. You know what that's all about. Ashish, you look in the crystal ball, and I know you got it out for the show and polished it off, and you're looking to see where the blue sky is going to be so you can see clearly. Ashish. Is 2020 a good year for you to talk about what's coming down the pike in terms of advances in healthcare from the perspective of technology, pharma, medical devices, everything we've been talking about today? Do you like 2020, or pick a different year and take two minutes on the clock? Ashish, go.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. I think 2020 is great year because four, five to six years from now, I I, I see um, a few things happening: big data. Uh, uh, we have talked so much about uh, how much of data is being generated today and with the wearable devices uh, coming in and evolving really fast uh, how uh, the the value can be driven uh, to the patients so that uh, they actually see um, that as as a healthcare tool uh, and not just a fashionable asset and by 2020 i actually see uh, the 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 cost of uh, of uh, technologies and affordability of of using these uh, these technologies on the back of uh, uh, the data um, analytics insights available from the combined data sets that are coming from the patients from the healthcare professionals from the uh, genomic data from uh, from the industry regulators etc cetera, etc cetera, to be a reality uh, i i I see uh that we will have uh, remote health monitoring absolutely as a norm for aging population in western world uh, saving lives uh, and not just uh, being a tool for uh, uh, for for uh, patient intrusion and so on and so forth so yeah i think 5 6 years we are on a on a great path of some tech evolution at this at this time
1: Thank you, Ashish. Quick question for you before we turn to Alan Louis. I know he's out there getting that crystal ball and polishing it off. So, Alan, I'll give you another 10 seconds to do that. Ashish, in terms of who is coming into the industry, who's coming into wanting to deal with genomic data, who's wanting to join pharma, who's wanting to work on medical devices and clinical trials, do you think this influx of new technology and, and the excitement of the tech advances will bring in younger people into the industry? Quick yes or no answer, please.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, good. Cool I look,
1: it. Is That's what I wanted to hear. It is cool stuff. Dr. Alan Louis at IDC Health Insights. Time for crystal ball. Is 2020 a good year for you, Alan?
3: Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we look at predictions pretty regularly, and if we look out to 2020, say five, six years from now, you know, to, to some extent, either in parallel or in contrast to Ashish, I would argue that by 2020, big data just becomes data. Uh, again, I think people who are passionate about this are trying to figure the workarounds. You know, if you don't need to be sending giant data sets around the world, why do it? If you can analyze them locally, convert that into the, into the, the important bits, then you can do that much more effectively. At the same time, I'm arguing that the entire world is actually going to essentially reduce itself down to what... You know, if if we remember the um, there was a movie that talked about six degrees of separation, I would mm-hmm. argue that we are going to get to one degree of separation, where essentially patients can basically interact directly with pharma companies. Investigate uh, clinical trial investigators essentially are interacting with both their patients and their sponsors, sort of as a individual, as compared to as a you know one of many groups. So mm-hmm. from that, I think the ability to enhance information sharing and communications individualized down to the patient level or down to that level of one, I think is going to be coming, and it's going to be coming very soon. And this fundamentally is going to require a transformation in the way in which we think about using social media, the way in which we use mobile technologies. And I think from as we look at advances in technologies, particularly over the near term, there's this other thing coming into play called the Internet of Things where everything is mm-hmm. connected, and I think to some extent, if you think about the fact that you can actually and, and this was recently approved by the FDA about a month ago there 's a device that you can actually uh, hook to your body, which then connects to your smartphone that then you know, met, monitors your vital signs, determines whether you fall, and looks at various physical things mm. and basically that information is now automatically or has the potential to automatically go to your doctor and say. You know, how are you doing? Is your blood pressure running high? Should I call you in early? Are you doing fine enough that I can defer your meeting by a month or two? And so it becomes much more interactive. You actually have a much better grip on where the situation is in terms of managing a patient's uh, illness or looking at their health. Or as we think about the way in which, particularly in in the United States and other um, uh, more developed countries, how the aging population can work on their you know exist on their own for a longer period Mm -hmm. before having to go into care because technology will basically say, you know, if you have a problem, we'll know about it. But otherwise, you know, you can basically continue to live your regular life and and enjoy yourself.
1: Thank you, Alan. Great insights. I just hope that if I ever did that, they wouldn't show my doctor how often I eat chocolate, but we won't go there. Yes or no answer from you, Alan Louie, is the excitement in healthcare, pharma, technology going to bring in a younger population of workforce to join this excitement, yes or no?
3: Uh, I think there is a bit of yes and no, and ideally I'm hoping it's yes. I think there's clearly – this is an area that's growing, so there's there's, um, definitely opportunity there. So I think uh, to a large
1: extent the answer is yes. Thank you. I like that. That's optimistic. Joe Miles, I saved exactly – ooh, 90 seconds for you to wrap up for your predictions. 2020 or what year? Go ahead, Joe Miles. We I'm have sorry. Joe Miles. That's okay. is
4: fine, and I think I would echo what uh, the two other speakers have, have said. I would say that, you know, kind of taking it a little different direction, you know, we're going to continue to see the, the level of collaboration um, across the board, I think, continue to to, uh, to increase, both from a technology perspective, from a scientific perspective, uh, at all different levels. Um, you're, I think you're going to see a convergence basically of maybe of uh, the walls between the providers and the and the pharmacies and the pharmaceuticals and the drug company or the device companies start to fall down a bit, and they be, as they become closer and closer and closer um, at bo- both an operational and a, and at a research level, um, the devices will continue to grow. I, I agree with Alan's point around data will just become data, devices will just become devices. This will become an active and, and just a regular part of our day that we have these types of um, capabilities that can improve our overall health. And I think as we we're going to continue as a society to to, to uh, leverage easy-to-use and uh, simple but effective technologies, and that, as I think that that concept is going to grow, that the number of devices are going to grow. It'll just become part of our normal everyday life, and I think that's only going to just continue to grow and grow and grow, and it will become much more the norm um, as we go as we go forward. And I think by 2020, we'll, we'll see a, a large portion of that already in place.
1: Thank you, Joe. And Are millennials going to want to be part of it? Yes or no?
4: Where there's opportunity, there will be growth, and where there's growth, there will be uh, millennials. I think they'll absolutely be a part of that.
1: Good. I love it. Hey, I want to thank my extraordinary panel, Ashish Goel at Infosys, Alan Louis at IDC Health Insights, Joe Miles at SAP. Shout outs to Brad Borkin and Susan Rafazada for bringing this topic to us. Pramod Pratap, tweeter extraordinaire at Infosys and also SAP Healthcare has been tweeting alongside Pramod, Brad and the Business Channel team. And let's see what's coming up. Bill, well, today we're doing a repeat on the customer edge with Game Changers, uh, Makeover, Extreme Makeover, making your field sales reps into ambassadors. For your company. Tomorrow I'll be back at 10 a.m. Eastern with the future of business with Game Changers. Exciting show we have coming up for you live tomorrow. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. We're almost done. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. See you tomorrow morning right here on the Business Channel with Future of Business. Bye bye. <music>